0: all right everybody hey glad to have you guys here at new life today my name is jeff i'm one of the pastors on staff so if you are a guest with us i just want to say hello to you i want to say thanks for coming out today Uh, i know that all throughout south central nebraska we had some crazy weather this past week but everyone survived it right all right yeah is everybody who's who's blizzard lovers let me see the blizzard lovers Yeah, all right. I want to say a big hello to all of you that are worshiping with us out in North Platte. You guys, you guys got hit by some pretty serious storms out there as well. I also want to say hello to all of those that are worshiping with us right now down in the venue. So just to make it clear for everybody that's here, whether you worship here on a normal basis or you're a guest here with us today, you're sitting in one of four worship services. We have three different worship locations. Uh, Those three locations are live together right now for the preaching. Um, At each location, we have incredible worship leaders and incredible people that are doing children's ministry. It's fantastic. We are one church in multiple locations but even though we are one church in multiple locations all locations got hit by the blizzard so how many of you guys didn't even get out of your house on tuesday all right right didn't even get out of your house right didn't even leave um how many of you guys didn't even leave on wednesday you just were stuck in your house on wednesday how many were going crazy on wednesday that they were stuck in their house oh man it was so painful for me I I literally, I I tried to convince my wife, right? I tried to convince her on Tuesday, honey, listen, we we spent nine years of our life in Alaska. Come on, blizzards are like a regular summer day for us all right let's get out there let's go for a walk let's get some let's get let's get out of this house let's get out there and do it and you know she she goes to the window she looks out she goes hey look there's somebody walking and it was like maybe somebody that i don't know got their car stuck or whatever and i go to the window and right about then the wind just blows intensely and then boof the guy face plants and she goes This is no joke. That's a true story. And I just, it was was the craziest thing you've ever seen. I mean, it was just like one of those like boom. And he's just like down. And my wife goes, see? And she just walks away. And and I'm just stuck there at the window. Um, So, uh, you know, we didn't leave the house. Um, It's kind of the way it went. I, the whole time, you know, as a guy, you go, you go and you stare out your window. I've got my Jeep Wrangler, four-wheel drive, right, sit in the parking lot. I'm going, come on, man, we can go do this. Me and the Jeep will do it. And me and the Jeep didn't even get out. So um, <laughs> it was intense. It was intense. And um, it, was nice, it was nice to actually have a couple of days just to unwind a little bit, right? You with me on that? Okay, good. I'm glad everyone survived. Glad to, see, uh, glad to see the first service was packed out. It was awesome. Second service here at, uh, at New Life in the, our main auditorium is looking good. And we've been seeing some record numbers out in North Platte. North Platte for the month of January has been averaging. Now, we've only, we've only launched this church a year ago in September. We're, in, we're not even a year and a half old yet. And in January, these guys are averaging, this is their average number, 168 people in worship at a North Platte campus. It's exciting. The venue, the venue's been having like 198 up into the low 200 marks uh, even the past while. So it's been awesome. I Man, God, God is continuing just to, to grow our church and we're praying about, God, where else can we go that we could plant another church? So last week, how many of you guys were here last week? Anybody? How many either were here or you listened online last week? I just wanna say this, Pastor Nate, he preached last week and he brought that message about planting the first of 1,000 churches. And I just wanna say, I thought Pastor Nate knocked the ball out of the park. <laughs> this is knocked the ball out of the park. And I, I'm even going to go as far as to say it's probably one of the best sermons of the entire year so far. So <laughs> we've still got a lot of sermons to go, but I bet you it's going to be one of the best of the entire year. It'll be the best of the best come the end of the end of 2016. I am so excited about that one church plant of a thousand over in Ivory Coast. Uh, It is our DNA, it is our heartbeat here at New Life. We want to raise up disciples that make disciples, and I'm just gonna tell you right now, the, the best way to make that happen is go plant a church where there isn't one. That's where the kingdom of God's growing the quickest, is where people like us will step out in faith and go plant a church. And put a a pastor there that's full of God's spirit and get a few disciples that are there and let them go out and start evangelizing and sharing the good news of Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ is growing on this planet today. The evangelical church of, of Christ is growing in leaps and bounds in some areas of this world. I'm telling you right now, do not believe that Christianity is dead. It is very much alive and God's still transforming and changing people. That's happening don't believe what you read in the media i'm telling you right now there are there are incredible things happening around this planet and you and me we're a part of it right now and we're seeing those same things happening in north platte even here in Kearney. a church in its first seven years of existence sees some of its most rapid growth and then after that you see a decline you know what you've seen in new life's history a a steady incline throughout the entire history of this church and we're only capitalizing on that now and seeing God do more incredible things than we've ever dreamed possible um, through, through the generosity of you giving, giving of finances, but also giving of yourself. Just giving of yourself to be involved in ministry and to believe with us that we can go and we can reach more people for the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's who, we're, that's who we are and that's what we're gonna be about. So if we're going to launch into a new teaching series here today, it's going to be out of the book of James. James is in the New Testament. I'm going to encourage you to do something with us during this teaching series. Be reading the book of James. So now if you don't have a devotion life, like you don't spend time in God's word on a regular basis, let let me encourage you, take time and spend it in God's word and go into the book of James and start reading it. This week and next Sunday, I'm preaching out out of chapter one. After that, we're going to be preaching out of chapter two for two weeks. So for the next Four weeks, you've got chapter one and chapter two. That's all, that's all you gotta really be reading. And if you'll just read that and you'll pray and you'll say, God, speak to me from this because as our church, we're going through this. You're gonna gain a lot from it. So please, please be doing that. We entitled this series James because it's the book of James. But we also put this tagline on it, where faith collides, where faith collides. That's because the book of James deals with your faith and it colliding with every aspect of your life. I mean, when you think about it, a collision of two objects coming together has a tremendous amount of force, and it leaves this impact on one another, uh, that neither of these two things are the same after they've collided together. As an example, let me help you understand what I mean by that, uh, why we came up with the name Where Faith Collides. Like an asteroid or a meteorite, it comes sailing into the Earth's atmosphere, and it hits the earth, it leaves what? It leaves a big crater. This crater's in Arizona. If you've ever been there, um, you can go see it in person. Um, but that, that, that meteorite, that rock that came from space that slammed into earth whenever this thing happened and it, it displaced earth itself and it caused this crater that will forever be there unless man comes and tries to fill it back in. That's the force of one, one item colliding with another item. It leaves a permanent change. See, that's what our faith is supposed to do as well. Um, there's, other, there's other examples, though, of things colliding that leave a change. Like when two sports teams, they collide together, right? When two sports teams collide together, that, that forever leaves a change, if you know what I'm saying today, Right? And today, we've got some kind of little game going on, I think, it's happening. We've got the biggest sporting event of the year happening, the Super Bowl, the Broncos versus the Panthers. Based on the main auditorium, the Broncos have it. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm just like taking a big gamble and saying that the Broncos are going to definitely have it in North Platte. They're even closer right? And they're probably cheering right now, can't hear a word I'm saying. Um, so uh, down in the venue, I have no idea, right? Those guys are just crazy. They could be going, they, they, they might not even realize it's the Super Bowl. I have no idea. So um, so we got this big game, yeah, where two sports teams, they collide. It's going to leave a, an everlasting mark on history of the NFL. One of these two teams is gonna become the, the victor. And they will forever be known as the Super Bowl champs. So that's, that's gonna happen. But you also have other ways that we're experiencing right now. Like in a presidential campaign, you've got, you've got competing thoughts. You've got different thoughts that are being slammed together. This is not a joke, this is reality. This is where we live. We live in a world where competing thoughts are slamming together. Now, all I had to do was put that one picture up there and it instantly got got remarks from you. I didn't put it up there because I'm voting for any of those particular people. Um, I'm not even going to tell you who I would vote for. But I will tell you this, those competing thoughts are capturing a lot of our media. They're capturing a lot of our attention right now. They're sucking up a lot of hours. See, where thoughts collide, they will leave a mark and an imprint. Somebody is gonna become the president of the United States. Whether it's one of those two or it's someone else, something's gonna change. See, but that's what faith should be doing in the world in which we live in. Our faith should be colliding with the world that we live in and it should forever be leaving a mark. Is your faith colliding with the world, or have you bought into the lie that faith should be somewhat kind of segmented away, and that faith should be exercised on Sundays, faith should be exercised on Wednesday, maybe when you're in a life group or a Bible study, or faith should be exercised when I'm with other believers, but I shouldn't exercise faith in this world in which I live in, because if you bought that lie, I'm telling you right now, this book of James is going to step all over your toes. Because the book of James is all about your faith colliding with the real world. Faith doesn't even work unless it collides with the real world. Faith grows weaker the more you leave it on the shelf. Faith grows stronger the more you activate it and you bring it into your workplace. You bring it into your marriage. You bring it into your finances. You bring it into the way that you raise your children. You bring it into your everyday decisions. When faith is brought in, it can allow you to grow. That's what this whole teaching series is gonna be about, challenging you and me to let faith collide with our everyday lives. So are you ready to get started? James chapter one, verse one. We could preach probably all morning long just on that one verse. It's packed, it's chalked full of two incredible things. Let me show you what I'm talking about. James, he starts this letter. This letter is from James. That's good, because it's called the book of James. This letter, that's not one of my main points, by the way. Just wanna let you guys know. All right, this letter is from James. A slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, the Jews, the Jewish believers which have been scattered abroad. Greetings. Right off the bat, how does James introduce himself? Obviously he uses his name, James. But then after that, it's very critical that you understand that he introduces himself in this introduction in a, in a very profound way. He says, I am a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus. Now, when you read books, right, which I know all of you guys read books, when you read books, do you always read the introduction to the book? Or do you read the back, the back, back of the book, the back of the cover of the book, and then you go, I'll start in chapter one? Because I don't know how you do it, but I hate introductions, I, I mean, I just, I'm like, this is a waste of my time. I'm skipping right into it. If I like it, I like it. If I don't, I don't, it's okay. And I jump into chapter one. Many times in our reading of God's word, we jump over the introductions to these these incredible books because they start out with things like this, you know, like, hey, I'm James. And you read things like that and you go, I'm jumping to verse three, where he really starts into the meat of things. If you jump over the introductions of books, you will miss some of the most critical pieces that set up the heart of where they're gonna go. This one verse sets up the entire heart of James for the entire book. He says he's a slave to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that so important? It's so important because James was actually one of the half brothers to Jesus. That means James, James came about in this world because of Mary and Joseph. James would have been the oldest child that Mary and Joseph had together. Jesus, you know, being birth of God's spirit, Mary giving birth to him. Then the next one, next one in in the family line, James. And then the other brothers and even sisters, the Bible tells us, that Jesus had. James, a brother of Jesus, a half-brother. Don't you think that if you were going to write a letter, if you were going to write a letter, right, and you're going to send it out to a bunch of Christian people, that you would have started the letter if you were James? Hey, my name's James. You guys know I'm one of the brothers of Jesus. Not even sarcastic, but just at least name drop. I mean, come on, James. Everybody name drops. Do you guys have named dropped before? I mean, think about the name you would drop right now if you had the opportunity to tell the story. Who's the famous person that you know? Who's the famous person that you met on the street in New York that one time that now you feel like you're best friends with, right? You follow them on Facebook even. Who's, who's the famous person? Because people like the name drop. It gives them a sense of power. It, it causes them to feel like they're really important. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Because some of you guys know Since you guys are too humble to name drop, I'll name drop. Um, Some of you guys know that when Kim and I were in Alaska, I was the youth pastor at Wasilla Assembly of God in Wasilla, Alaska. That's where Sarah Palin was the mayor. Sarah and Todd and their children, they came to our church. Sarah, Todd, and their kids, we went to their house. They came over to our house. We, our kids played with their kids. Their kids played with our kids. I bought Todd's snow machines after he would race them in the Iron Dog and win, and then he would put them back together so that I wouldn't kill myself, and I would buy it from him, and then I would go race it down on lakes. So, I mean, we kind of knew one another. They were part of our youth staff, right? They, would, they were there. She was there, at least, to pray with kids and, you know, to help me kind of lead teenagers. So there, boom, dropped the name. Why didn't James do that? Now, I did say I knew them, I don't still know them. So no, I can't call any favors, sorry. (laughs) Why didn't James drop a name like that? What what stopped James from just name dropping at this key moment? I mean, because, let's find out a little bit more about James, maybe we'll we'll grab a hold of it. James, growing up with Jesus, I mean, come on, let's just be real. Did, Did he play, did they play together? Sure. Did they live underneath the same roof? Yeah. Did they eat at the same table? You better believe it. Did they walk into their dad's carpentry shop together? Yeah, they did. Did they know the same names of the same neighbors? Yes, they did. Right? I mean, they had so many experiences. You get them together for a family huddle, and James and Jesus could have told some of the same similar stories of their childhood growing up. But here's something interesting to note, that when Jesus launches out in his ministry, James, his mother, his brothers, and his sisters all think that he's insane. And in fact, John tells us this about him, that for even his brothers, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. So when Jesus launches out into his ministry, James, who grew up with Jesus, goes, this guy's insane, I don't know what's happened to him, he's flipped the switch, he's gone off the deep end, I don't even believe in what he's saying. In fact, Jesus' brothers don't come to understand who he really is and believe in him until after the death on the cross and the resurrection. And it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, which will not be on your screens, that in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, Paul gives this account of all the people that Jesus interacted with and he saw after his resurrection. It said that Jesus interacted with groups of like 500. He interacted with his apostles, other, other people. But it, then it says that Jesus basically came face-to-face, one-on-one with one person. That person was James. One-on-one, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse seven, one-on-one with James. What do you think went down in that conversation? Hey, James, (laughs) you still don't believe? James, you're you're the oldest of all of our siblings. You're, You're looked to as a leader in our family. James, I am your brother, but I am the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the Messiah that had been prophesied for hundreds of years to come. I am he. I can only imagine that in that moment, James drops to his knees and with tears in his eyes, finally confesses, you are Jesus the Lord. Something transforms inside of him. We know that because moments after this, days after this, Jesus in the resurrection is here on earth for 40 days, the Bible tells us. And when Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives this command to all of his followers, go and wait for the power that I'm sending to you. Go and pray and wait. And in Acts chapter 1, that's exactly what they do. It says they all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with, look who's there, Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. So we know that James in this encounter with Jesus is transformed, he's actually now with other believers in prayer waiting for Acts chapter two to take place which is the power of the Holy Spirit that fell upon them and they started preaching the good news and spreading the gospel to where you and me are even here today believing in Jesus. Or some of you are being challenged to believe in Jesus. But we know that's not where James stopped. James didn't just go to a prayer meeting In Acts chapter 15 what do we find out about James? James has now become the leader of this infant church. He's now the leader. This new birthing of this church, James has now become the leader. James, the leader of the church, the one who had a personal encounter with Jesus chooses to introduce himself as a slave to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ instead of using the name drop that he could have. Why? Because James had a fresh revelation. Look with me, when faith collides, when your faith collides with humility, it brings revelation. That's what happened for James. When faith collided with humility, his eyes were opened up and he began to see, oh, I might have all these memories of me running around with my older brother Jesus, but he is the Lord. Oh, we might have wrestled together and we might have, we might have taken hikes together and we might have built things at my father's shop together, but he is the savior of the world. When faith collided with humility, a revelation happened for him. And let me just tell you, the revelation that allows him to say he's a, he's a slave, he's a slave to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the greatest aspiration of any Christian. The greatest aspiration for you is not what you can do for God or what kind of title you can hold. It's can you get to a point where you're content with saying, I am a slave to God and to the Lord Jesus. That's your aspiration. James had to fight through the pride and the, all of the elements that came with it, the, maybe the, at, at early on at least, the disgust that his brother was the one out there making all this shame for his entire family. And then he gets to the point where he says, but you're the Savior. What are you fighting with? What do you have to fight through? Because you ultimately need to get to the place where you can say, yes, I am a slave. That happens when faith collides with humility. It will open up your eyes and bring revelation. So what I want you to do is I want you to soak for a moment. Soak in a little humility. Soak in a little humility. Soak in a little humility of who you really are in the scope of eternity. Who you really are in the scope of this world. Not to belittle you, but to put you in the proper place so that you can have a revelation of who God really is. Maybe you should maybe walk through these statements with me. You are not, put your name in there. You are not, I'm going to put Jeff Baker. You are not. Jeff Baker, who knows some famous person. That's not your identity. You are not, put your name in, Jeff Baker, who has achieved and accomplished such great things for God. That's not your identity. You are first and foremost, put your name in, Jeff Baker, a slave of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the greatest status. This is the greatest title that anyone could carry on planet Earth. Not who becomes the next president, although they're going to fight hard for that. It's who can get to a point where they can say, I'm a slave to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the greatest title. My challenge to you is this. Humble yourself and let faith collide with your humility and rest before God and say, God, it's not about who I'm trying to become, but it's about who you want me to be. That's the first thing that James would come right out of the chute and he would say, if you don't get that, you're probably not going to get a lot of what I'm going to say to you. Until you're able to really wrestle with that, you're going to find this, this is going to step on a lot of your toes. Guess what? That's okay. That's a part of the process of you getting to a point where you don't have to name drop, you don't have to, you know, preach your own accolades, but you can get to a place where you can be a slave to God and to the Lord Jesus. That's where God's taking us because that's where a powerful church comes from so the second thing out of james chapter 1 verse 1 because he had another powerful thing was this he starts it right here he goes i am i'm writing to the 12 tribes who are these 12 tribes they're the jews they're the jewish believers who have been scattered abroad they've been scattered they had to leave their homeland they had to flee to judea and to samaria they had to go to you know what they would know as the ends of the earth at that time to flee persecution why do they have to flee persecution Well, here's what happens. Early on in Acts, Stephen, one of Christ's followers, gets executed right in front of their eyes. He gets buried in the ground with his head above the ground, with his arms in the ground, and they hurl stones at him until he dies right in front of them. And they execute the very first follower of Jesus. And then it says that all of those religious leaders started hunting down, basically, hunting down all of the Christians. The Christians scattered at that time, and they scattered into all different places. So now James is writing this letter to these people that have witnessed with their own eyes the the persecution and the slaughtering of their own people with, with Stephen being the first and others that aren't named that definitely died Now they're out there in these remote regions and they're still facing trials and troubles and persecution and their homes are being burnt down and they're being fired from their jobs and everything they have, possessions, are being stolen from them. And they're watching friends and neighbors being killed and they're finding that they don't have anywhere safe to go. The foreigners are persecuting them and the Jews are persecuting them and they are in deep trouble. Their faith is being tried to the core. They're in a place of persecution, trouble, and trial that you and me have never seen. We have never felt before. Your trouble, your trial, it is is minuscule compared to what the early church was experiencing at their day. And James has the goal, the goal, the boldness to write to them. James chapter 1 verse 2. Dear friends and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Whoa, seriously? Can you imagine? Here you are with your family and you've scattered and you've and you're facing all these trouble and persecution and you get this letter from James. You're like, hey, everybody, come around. James wrote us this letter. Oh, James, that's so cool. You're a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that's so cool. You're awesome. Oh, dear brother, we face troubles. Yeah, that's right. We face troubles. Yeah, he knows what we're facing. He's the leader of the church. Oh, guys, by the way, consider an opportunity for great joy. Whoa, throw that thing to the ground. What? Are you serious, great joy? How should I take great joy in the fact that my uncle just died? How should I take great joy in the fact that my brother, he just lost everything that he has, that was taken from him? How does it bring me great joy, you know, that my sister was just raped? How does it bring me great joy that that happens? That's what these early church people would have been saying. How does it bring me such great joy in these troubled times? In studying this, I came across what I felt like was a pretty good word picture for how do you get from troubled times to opportunities of great joy? And the illustration went like this. It's all about baking a cake. Has anybody ever baked a cake before? Okay, you kinda know the basic elements of a cake? Let me just give you a few of them. Eggs, flour, butter. How about some like vanilla extract maybe? Just because it's only one of the things I know. might be baking powder or baking soda. I don't know. All right, that's where my knowledge ends right there. All right, you got a pan. You got these basic elements. You just open a box and pour it in there. I mean, come on. Let's be honest. All right. So if you're gonna make a cake from scratch, these are the components you have. Now, can you imagine with me going, "Hey, you, you guys want a cake? Yeah, I want a cake. Well, listen, everyone, sit down at the table. Come on. And I just have the raw elements out there, and they go, "Well, here, eat a little butter. Just eat the butter. Come on, just pretend." In fact, eat the butter, maybe get a little bit of the flour. You got a big bowl of sugar, get some of the sugar in there with it. Can you imagine just trying to eat the elements of a cake raw? (sighs) But once all those elements have been mixed together, and they've been baked in an oven, and they've been allowed to cool, and then you begin to eat it. Oh man, it's amazing, isn't it? It's so good that You know, I had wrote this in my notes and I was pondering it yesterday so much so that my wife had to go and buy me a cupcake just so I could satisfy the need (laughs) that had been created by this one little illustration. Um, And now you too will probably eat cake this afternoon. Because yes, cake is good, but the elements in and of themselves are horrible, See, that's what happens when you go through your troubles and your trials and your tribulations and you face the, the, the difficult things that you're facing today that bring you trouble. They might taste like butter, but God's making a cake out of it. It might taste like flour. It might be like vanilla extract that's squeezing in your mouth. It might not taste very good right now, but you can take great joy when you know that God will turn something amazing out of it. That God will take that, he'll combine it with these other trials and troubles and situations, and you give God time, and he'll turn it into something amazing. That's what I've seen in my personal life. God has taken my past pain, and he's wielded it into a weapon that now gets used to help others experience great joy. God has taken my past scars, and he's healed them to a point that now my past scars are actually able to be used as an ointment or a balm, if you will, to help others find healing. What do you have to do, though, when you're eating the butter of life? You gotta give God some time. Don't give up on God. That's what James is telling us. James is saying this, take great joy when life serves you the flower because God's gonna bring the cake later. Because that's what God does. That's who God is. So he says, take great joy in that even though it tastes horrible. It feels bad because God's working something amazing on your behalf. But part of the secret, though, is this, that when faith, collides with trials and with troubles, it brings joy. When you allow your faith to collide with these things, to have a a direct impact and not try to avoid it, not just try to figure everything out on your own and work it all out in your own abilities, when you let faith collide with your troubles and your trials, that's when God can bring great joy in you. But you're going to have to stop looking for happiness Happiness is something that's centered on a earthly circumstances. Happiness is not what's going to you know, fix your life. If just your earthly circumstances change, that doesn't mean that everything's good. God's looking more at the heart. See, that's where joy comes in. Joy is God-centered when it, when it recognizes that God's presence is in the midst of your trials and your trouble. That's joy. Joy is recognizing, God, you're in the midst of even the hellish thing I'm going through right now that you haven't forsaken me, you haven't left me, you're still working your perfect plan on my behalf, even though it tastes bad. Happiness is I want this taste to go away and I want it to be really good right now. And you know what, all that maybe could happen from time to time, but that doesn't mean that now you've experienced the actual blessing of God. It might mean that you got in there and just fixed things on your own and you avoided even experiencing the great joy that God could bring to your life. Joy, I would say to you is this, it's a choice. It's a choice, and you got to decide whether you're going to make it or not. James, in James chapter 3, he speaks to us a little bit more about this subject, and he says, For you know that when your faith is tested, that your endurance has a chance to grow. He just comes right out, and he says this. Why should you take great joy? Take great joy because it it, it tests your endurance. It tests your spiritual connectedness with God. It, It tests your faith with God, and when that happens, you actually have a chance to grow. You can grow stronger you can become more like God. So James would say to us, be encouraged when troubled times come. It's an opportunity for your faith to grow. It's an opportunity for you to look and sound and be a lot more like Jesus. James would also go on to say this, though, to us. He would say, in the midst of your trouble, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of the difficult things that you're facing, listen to what he would say in verse five. If you need wisdom... Ask our generous God and he'll give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. I just find it really interesting that in the middle of some of your most hellish moments, James would say to you, oh, you know what you might wanna do? You might wanna ask for wisdom. Has anyone ever thought about asking for wisdom when you are facing some of your greatest troubles and trials? Or have you particularly you know, asked God for rescue? Which one do you ask God more for, rescue or wisdom? Most likely it's rescue. Rescue me, God, out of this situation. Take this horrible thing I'm facing away from me. James says you might want to consider asking God for wisdom. That intrigues me. Why wisdom, James? So when you study it, you begin to really understand why James says wisdom. Because you need wisdom if you've lost sight that God is with you even in the midst of your troubles and your trials. You can't see God at work. Often, life is like a blizzard, like we just went through. Often, that's what life is like. And it throws trouble and trials your way, and it's like a whiteout in front of you. And if you were driving your car in the midst of a situation like that, you just got to stop because you can't even see the road. And that's what trials and troubles want to bring. Like a whiteout situation where you can't get out of your house, where if you're in a car, you're stuck and you can't drive anywhere. What does God want to do? When we pray for wisdom, it's like as if God comes down and he moves it all out of the way and he goes, now you can see clearly. See, when faith collides with a desperate heart, it produces clarity. When you allow faith to collide with this desperateness that says, God, I don't want you just to rescue me. I need your wisdom to keep me online. That's the only way I'm going to find joy. James is trying to give us some instructions here. The only way you're going to find joy is if you ask God for wisdom so that you can see him in the midst of your trials and your, and your tribulations. That's where, that's where faith is going to collide with that desperate heart. And now you're going to start seeing more clearly than you have before. Now your troubles and your trials, they become smaller and more minuscule than the large monsters that maybe they were screaming at you with. So try doing this. Try asking God for wisdom to sense him in the middle of your trial or your tribulation that you're facing right now, the trouble that you're facing. Try doing that more than asking God to rescue you. It's gonna be difficult. I mean, it goes against the grain. But for some of you right now, some of you right now, your whole prayer has been, rescue me, rescue me, rescue me, and you don't sense God doing anything, and you're, you've got a bad attitude towards God, and you're wondering to yourself, what have I done to offend you, God? And let me tell you something right now. You, you probably did nothing to offend God. It's that, that when troubles come, James says. Got it? When troubles come, they're gonna come. That's what, that's what this world is in which we live in. That's what we face all the time. When troubles come, pray God, give me wisdom to see you at work in the midst of my trials and my troubles. Keep my attention on you. Don't let my eyes get focused on the trouble. Don't let my eyes get focused on the blizzard. Do that more than asking God to rescue you. You'll grow in your faith and your faith will become stronger than it's ever been before. So pray. Pray for God to give you wisdom to see him. Yes, do that. But also pray for God to give you the wisdom to trust him and not just your intellect or your instinct, but also pray and ask God for the wisdom, right, to find joy in the Lord even during the pain and the suffering. James would wrap up and he would say to us this about about wisdom, though, and it's, it's pretty profound. He goes, okay, but guys, hold on one second. If you're gonna ask for wisdom, do do this one thing, please. Be sure that your faith is in God alone. Many times when we ask for wisdom from God, it's to make us look smarter. It's to make us feel like we're more in control of a situation. That's not what's gonna produce faith that collides with a world that's strong enough to win. What God's looking for is for us to come to him asking for, de- asking for wisdom out of a desperate heart. God wants to create a greater dependency of us on him. God's not looking just to rescue us because that creates a dependency on us. We think we just did it. We think we just took care of it. We think we controlled God. God wants us to come and create a greater dependency on him. So when we seek him for wisdom, make sure we're seeking him and him alone, and we're not seeking him for what we can gain out of it, but we're seeking him so that we can find him more. That's where true wisdom lies, guys. True wisdom lies in the heart of the man or the woman that seeks God just to know his heart, not to manipulate it for their own selfish gain. So when we ask for wisdom, let's ask it, seeking it for God alone. James wraps up this whole concept of trouble and tribulation in James chapter 1, verse 12, and that's where I'm gonna to end today. It says that God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. God blesses those who endure it. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You know, I put out on The City, it's an app that we have that is, it creates community where we have multiple locations and not everybody knows everyone you know, at our church. And the city is a, is a nice little social media kind of app, but it's closed just to our church. If you want to get access to it, um, you probably got to send an email. If you gave us your email, if you, we don't have your email, please just call the church because we want everybody to be a part of it. I started a discussion though on, on the city about this Sunday. Some of you preaching out of, out of uh, James chapter one. Hey guys, please read it. Share with me your favorite verse. And boom, the very first person that took me up on it was Dennis McConnell, out at our North Platte location. Um, He says that James chapter one, verse 12, by far is the favorite verse for him out of the entire chapter and he went on to explain why, because he had been watching Francis Chan's study on James, which is offered free on Right Now Media, which we give you and I would encourage you to watch it. It's a very good teaching, I've watched it. Francis Chan takes verse, verse 12 and he looks at the word testing and he says, the word testing comes from The understanding of a person that would refine metal. So take a silversmith as an example and he would heat up all this silver and all the dross the impurities would come to the top and he would be testing the silver and when the impurities come he takes the impurities off the top. He lets it cool and he heats it back up and he does that again over and over and over again. He tests the silver to bring about a purity but guess how he knows when it's pure. When the silversmith looks down into the bowl of silver and he starts to see his reflection back. Blessed are those who endure trials and troubles. Why? Why? Why blessed? Because God's looking down and he's starting to see his reflection in you. I don't know about you, but in the deepest, darkest struggles of my life, I want God to look at me and see his reflection. It's easy, guys, to love God when everything's going good. Much harder to love God when everything seems to be falling apart. But what's God looking for? God's looking for when trials and troubles, which those are not elective courses in Christianity, those are the primary courses, can't avoid those, that when these primary courses come your way, that God looks down at you and he sees the reflection of himself by your actions, by your belief, and by your heart. That's, that's when God goes, I'm gonna pour out my blessings upon that person. That's when God goes, the people that they move through and they endure those testings and trials, those are the people who are gonna get the crown of life. Those are the type of people who will spend eternity with me in heaven. So my challenge to you of action today would be this, let the Holy Spirit collide with your heart and leave a crater of faith in you today. Don't avoid him. If he's knocking on your heart's door, say yes to him. Let the Holy Spirit collide with you and leave a crater of faith that's demanding to be filled with the grace and the presence and the awe and the wonder of God today. Let the Holy Spirit collide with you. If you're hungry, listen carefully, if you're hungry for faith that has the strength to endure and collide with this world and win, you're in the right place. If you're hungry today for a faith that can collide with this world, that's strong enough to collide with your workplace and win, strong enough to collide with your marriage and win, strong enough to collide with the raising of your children and win, strong enough to collide with your finances and win, whatever trial or trouble you're facing, if you're hungry for a faith that's strong enough to collide with this world and win, you're in the right place. I would encourage you that while our worship teams play and they lead us into the presence of God, that you would come to the altars in all three of our auditoriums, kneel yourself down before God and say, God, I want a faith that's strong enough to withstand the collision that that is needed to collide with my world, to collide with my struggle, to collide with what I'm facing. Maybe it is that you need to come and kneel before God and say, God, I need wisdom. I've been asking for rescue, but I need wisdom. You come. The altars in our church are for the hungry, right? They're not for the screwed up, messed up. People that come to the altar are not the screwed up, messed up. They're the hungry. Let's make sure we keep our church with that attitude. Those are hungry people. So my question to you today is this. Who's hungry? Because I'm just going to tell you, faith that doesn't collide with real life is dead. So why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we we just simply come to you We're not trying to impress you. We're not gonna come with big words and long excuses of why we did this or why we did that. God, we're just simply coming to you and we're confessing that we're in need of wisdom, that we're facing situations that we've wanted to be rescued from, but you're trying to use those to build your character inside of us, to refine us through the testing. And if we endure, there is a blessing. So God, give us wisdom to sense you, to see you instead of our struggle to see you, God. And to follow you. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible book. This incredible writing that you inspired James, the brother of Jesus. With fresh revelation enough that he's able to say, I'm a slave. Thank you for filling his heart and his mouth with powerful words that are going to transform us this very day. Holy Spirit, come. Have your way in our heart. Have your way in our lives. Rescue us because we're in need of it. Rescue us, God, because we have nowhere else to run. Rescue us from ourselves. Rescue us from ourselves, God. Help us to find our complete hope and our trust in you, Jesus. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.